0: Hey everybody, welcome to Sunday School, a Bible study podcast brought to you by The Pillar. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my co-host, Kate Olivera, and our Sunday School teacher with a squeaky chair today, Dr. Scott Squeaky Chair Powell himself. Scott, how do?
1: I'm doing great, J.D. Kate, how are you? I'm doing great. (laughs) Did you introduce Kate yet? Yeah. yeah, I said my co-host Kate no. Olivera. Yeah. I was too focused on my chair.
0: Kate, how do? You? <laughs> I never say how do so. to you. Kate, how how do? I do good. I do good. How are you? Okay. Yeah, what's <laughs> the proper <laughs> response to that? Yeah. I don't. how I do. Don't actually, I think you just tip your hat and say mm. how how do. How
1: do. Yeah. Oh, you just say it back. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So nobody gets an answer. It's just how circular do
0: to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Listen. What we're gonna do this week Listen. is as fun as this has been. <laughs> <laughs> what, we're, What we're going to do this week is, uh, as you know, this is our Roman season of Sunday School, and we have been just moving right through the Book of Romans. Last week we learned, uh, we were really in the sort of medius theological section of the Letter to the Romans, and we spent time with Scott sort of talking about this notion that I've really been sort of chewing on the the sort of four harmonies in St. Paul's. Yeah, and maybe you could just give a, before we dive into Romans 9 through 11, which will be our material today, maybe you could just give a brief synopsis of... A, a very brief uh, synopsis of what we talked about last week.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the the middle part of the letter, chapter 5 through 8, kind of, the, I, I think, the climax. Well, people people are – I'm not even going to use that term because so many people are like, well, the climax is here, the climax but is here. I think kind of the section. meat. I yeah. like calling it the meat. I yeah. think that's really good. Um, so, you know, he's, he's sort of up to this point um, – He's dealing we we talked in the first episode about kind of well, the second episode, I suppose, about the circumstances, right? There's a there's a ethnically divided community in Rome, ecclesially, um, who are arguing over who should have power, who should have authority, who's better, who's more sinful, who's less sinful. But ultimately not just about these kind of surface level disputes, but like what does that have to do with God's promises? Who yeah. is Has God, God? Been faithful to us?
0: Yeah. Who is God? What does it mean? Because so, He said,
1: "What does and what, specifically, what does it mean for Israel?" Because He said that we are this kind of people. Yeah. So He um, kind of lays out some of the practicals. We went back to the beginning. He demonstrates. He begins with the bad news, right? So Saint he Paul la- does. Saint Paul did, does. He began with the bad news that is showing the problem sin of sin is universal. Because again, I think he's dealing with some some hot-headed and big-headed people in the church who are thinking that they're better than others. And he's like, look, there's a universality to sin. And um, neither your, as they kind of argue, ignorance to the Torah or your strict adherence to the Torah, neither of those have been able to rescue you from this, right? You're both steeped in sin and you need rescuing. So thanks be to God. In chapter three, he turns to the good news and how Jesus and his faithfulness to the promise has redeemed us. And so he talks about in in the middle section, then how has Jesus done this? And in chapter five, verse one, I think it's kind of the crux. He says, therefore, since we are justified, and we talked about that word justification, what does it mean to be justified? Um, In Paul's sense, it doesn't just mean to be like made good,
0: made a part of
1: a part of what? The, the family. family. Yeah, the family, the formal covenant family. We can right? even
0: say justified equals adoption. I think you
1: could. Yeah. yeah, literally it means to be made right before. Therefore, since we are made yeah. right, okay. Made right before God by faith. And again, whenever Paul faith, talks baptism. about faith, I think he's got baptism yeah. in mind. Um We have, what I know he doesn't have in mind is just kind of a a really believing. Yeah, and it's just not on the radar screen. Because, and we know that because he's used Abraham, remember as his model for this. Abraham is the, and Abraham wasn't baptized, nor was he circumcised, but he believed in God and he moved forward. There was, it was an active faith. So since we have been justified, brought into the family by faith, we have shalom. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this kind of heart of what Christianity is, is that God became man to fix the broken relationship between man and God, right? And if that's true, and if he's reconciled what Adam undid during the fall, then it means that the effects of what Adam did during the fall are also able to be reconciled. So what happened in the fall when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, took out of hubris or pride or fear or whatever other combination, they did the thing that God asked them not to do. They made themselves like God. They lost their relationship with God. It was broken. It's not obliterated. It's not what Martin Luther believed. It wasn't annihilated, but it was broken. There's a deep brokenness in our relationship with God. That's number one. There's a deep brokenness internally, right? They're stripped of the garments of glory, so to speak. And they're, do we talk about that? The baptismal garment thing. So they're, they're internally, there's something broken, right? There's a brokenness inside of them. they don't trust each other. They don't want to be seen. There's shame. So they're internally broken. They're externally broken, right? They don't trust one another. There's the distrust. There's the blaming of each other and their relationship with all of creation, which they were called to be stewards and tillers over. That's broken as well, right? There's It says the earth will now oppose you. So what Paul is demonstrating in this middle part of the letter is that that fundamental problem of the story has now been reconciled. So because we have shalom again, with God through Jesus, that means all the rest of it is true too. And this is, I think one of the, you know, this is really not to sound trite, but I mean, this is why the gospel is actually good news. Like this is Mm -hmm. profoundly important Mm. to think that not only do I have right relationship with God, right? That's good. That's cool. Me and Jesus, right? But it's not just me and Jesus. It's because of me and Jesus, I can actually be holy. I can live out the identity. That's what Paul is talking about with his kind of explication of the law in chapter 7. Why do I do the things that I don't want to do? The problem of the law, which we talked a little bit about on our very special episode, which I think will come out before this one, right? Yes, yes. So the problem of the law is that it just highlighted how broken I am, how much I suffer, how much I can, I can know what's right and wrong, but I just don't want to do it. And I can't do it. There's this inability to be the people I'm called to be. So because of Jesus... I can be holy. This is where we get the idea of sanctity of saints from people who've actually tapped into this. So that's chapter seven. I can be in right relationship with the people around me. That's what the undercurrent for the whole letter is, right? You need to get along, not just because it's nice to get along, but because in the plans of God, this is the family that was promised to Abraham. You are it. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be in war with each other. You don't have to be filled with strife. You can actually live that out. And then the logical extension, if The logical extension of our breaking relationship with God was a brokenness in ourselves and a brokenness with the people around us. It extended out to all of creation. All of creation was ruptured Mm -hmm. because of this sin. Mm -hmm. And his sort of climax of this part is that now all of creation is groaning out in travail, waiting to see the reconciliation, waiting for us to, again, be stewards again, be tillers again. Um, not merely in a like, well, we should recycle things sense. Yes, that's, I mean, I think we should care for the environment. But in the sense that our interactions with everything around us, the whole cosmos has been made right because of Jesus, which is which is logical in the sense that when Adam sins, when Adam and Eve sin all of creation is ruptured right there's a brokenness when jesus dies to atone for that sin what happens the earth quakes remember there's literally an earthquake it's not just like a neat kind of sign and wonder that's ancillary to this right. it's that jesus setting things right actually makes the earth cry out mm-hmm. there's an eclipse there's an earthquake there's all these things mm-hmm. and so what paul is saying is that look it's not just me and jesus jesus's work is all or it's uh, is it saint Irenaeus? He says, that which is not assumed is not redeemed. In other words, Jesus came to redeem all of it or none of it. It's a whole picture, which is uh, really beautiful, kind of theologically and personally, but it's also, um, in a certain sense, he is using some of the... Imperial propaganda from Rome about who Caesar was. Caesar came to bring in peace. Caesar came to bring in an end to war between people. Caesar came to bring in a new springtime where things would come back to life because of the greatness of Caesar. He's using this political propaganda to point toward what is real, which is actually, would it be shocking in Rome? You can see why Paul dies a couple of years later, right? Put to death by the Romans, because what he's saying is pretty. Pretty uh, provocative stuff. So yeah, that's kind of that central piece of the letter.
0: Okay, great. And this week we're talking about chapters 9 through 11. We have the Pillars Ed Condon with those readings. As always, you can skip the readings by jumping to the 1930 mark in this episode. That's 1930. Here's Ed.
2: I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? God. not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who was not loved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Why? because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news! But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For as Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, Has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to Baal so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, Neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree... How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, They are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all.
1: Okay. So this section of the letter has been used and misused. And li- like we've said with a lot of things in Romans, there's been a lot of confusion over this. There are, <laughs> I was actually surprised to learn that there's a number of scholars. Um, I, won't, I won't throw down any names from the last century or, or century and a half or so that actually think that nine through 11 doesn't really fit with the rest of it. And if you actually read it kind of closely, um, where he leaves off in chapter eight picks up pretty cleanly in chapter 12 (laughs) and uh, nine through 11 is he kind of changes subjects. He he goes into something else and there's a scholar, I think his name is C.H. Dodd, really famous biblical scholar. He was convinced that like Paul just happened to have an old sermon lying around. He's like, this seems like an appropriate place to throw this in. But people, because it does seem like it's going in a different direction. It Uh seems like it doesn't quite apply to the rest. Which, um, as we've been reading the book, I think it absolutely does. But if you're not reading the book of Romans, I think from the kind of cultural dilemma that the church in Rome is dealing with, Mm. it does seem like a, a side note. It seems like an aside, right? Well, what about Israel? If you're reading the letter from the viewpoint of what do we do about the promises of God to Israel and how mm-hmm. does that relate to these Gentiles and now this idea that we're a multi-ethnic family mm-hmm. that was by God's design from the beginning. Mm-hmm. The logical question is, well, what about Israel? So again, this has been kind of tossed around in a lot of different ways. This, to be quite frank, 9 through 11 has been at a lot of the roots for a lot of anti-Semitism that has arisen out yeah. of the, uh, over the years. Um, um, yeah, there's a lot more we could say about that, but I don't want to dwell on the wrong interpretations uh, more than the right. One of the things that, that I've been kind of hung up on this week as I've been thinking about this, is this idea of what this new humanity that Jesus came to establish is. Because that's one of the things that's sort of being reckoned with in this whole letter. that Jesus, and, and repeatedly, uh, not only in Romans, but elsewhere, Paul says that Jesus came to establish a new humanity. There is neither Jew nor Greek now, right? Neither slave nor free, woman or men, Jew or Greek, all these things. But what does that actually mean? And what's beautiful about the Catholic tradition, one of the things I love most about this tradition we have is that I don't think what Paul means is that this new humanity is meant to be this kind of homogenous, kind of colorblind Uh, generic beige reality, the the people of God, but rather it actually encompasses all cultures of the world. One of the things that's kind of fascinating, if you've been following along with Paul's whole argument on the law and its consequences and what Jesus sort of does about the law, one of the big things that the law prohibited, as well as one of, I think, the consequences for the unfaithfulness of Israel in the Old Testament... Was a scattering of the nations. I mean, we could go back to the Tower of Babel, right? And see how, in this desire for a sort of false oneness, right? It actually led to this division, right? This scattering away. So, one of the consequences for sin is a scattering of the nations. And one of the things that the law, the Torah in the Old Testament was trying to do was insulate Israel from the nations. There is a separateness, which God is using for a time to sort of work through what needs to be worked with. But if the law has been fulfilled then one of the most logical conclusions of the law being fulfilled is that there should be an ingathering of the nations. Yeah. Again, not in a homogenous way though, yeah. but the nations being the nations, one of the, um, not to get off tra- off topic, but um, I-, I had some experience in the Protestant tradition for a long time and I credit the Protestant tradition with helping me understand who Jesus was in some really beautiful ways when I didn't understand my Catholic faith. But I remember, did you guys ever read um, The Spirit of the Liturgy by Ratzinger yeah. back when he was Ratzinger? There's two books called Spirit of the Literature. Yeah, gordini's and yeah, Ratzinger's. and and, and this was from Ratzinger's. But I – and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it because I can't do it justice. But I uh, – he was talking about in one of the sections about why the rights, R-I-T-E, rights of the church are different than Protestant denominations. Mm-hmm. And again, none of this is meant with any disrespect toward my Protestant friends. You know, for various reasons, some legit, some probably less so, but there were splittings off – Toward, you know, what was understood to be kind of a a pure, right way of doing things, which is, as Ratzinger points out, the inverse or the opposite of what happened with the rites. And I think he uses the analogy, if if I'm not mistaking it with something else, of the sower and the seeds that Jesus talks about in the Gospels and how if you take a seed Mm – and you plant that seed, same seed, same plant, whatever that thing is, and you plant it in a different climate or environment, that seed is going to look different if it grows up in Colorado than if it grows up in you know, the Caribbean, right? It's going to look differently based on the, the stuff around it. And so the seed of the gospel is the same seed as the gospel. But because the apostles and the church took it to far-flowing parts of the world, that exact same seed, it wasn't something that broke off from something else, but it grew up taking on the distinct characteristics yep. of that place and that culture, and that was really beautiful to me, yeah. because that's not that's diversity, but not in sort of a, again in a in, a, in an abstracted way of like we just need to wa- you know kind of whitewash and, and ignore all of these real differences. Yeah. But the church is meant to be a place where the cultures of the world are come to Mount Zion, right? Yeah. The nations are flocking in and able to keep some semblance of their cultural identity, who they are while actually still living out the identity of the family of God, which I don't know, I've I've been thinking about that a lot this week, um, partially because of this passage and what Paul's trying to reckon through, because I don't think he's trying to tell the community in Rome, you need to all abandon your past and abandon, you know, I don't think he's, t- he made it very clear. Remember in those last chapters, he didn't tell the Jews, hey, stop keeping kosher, stop worrying about those things, ignore that stuff. It doesn't matter. Right. Stop, you know, uh, you know, thinking the Sabbath is more important than other days. Yeah. He doesn't do that. He says, look, There's legitimate things here, but But don't don't judge each other and don't look down on each other for that. But he doesn't tell them to homogenize themselves. And I think there's something to that. I think that's something important. I think one of the roots for anti-Semitism in the world historically is a misunderstanding of who this new humanity in Jesus is supposed to be, Mm. because the new humanity is not whoever the dominant population happens to be. Everyone should look like that, which again, historically, we've misused that. It's meant to be various cultures of the world living out their identity, which is, that's really beautiful. And again, it, it... it's not and just it's me being like poverty. politically correct. No, no, it's no. me saying look at the Old Testament and look at what God actually established in yeah. humanity and the church is now the fruit of that.
0: And it's actually probably a po- well not probably it seems to me a poverty for the church that there is yes. not at, at the center of the sort of um, network of cultures which is catholic identity that there's not a hebrew catholicism at the at the at the very center.
1: Yeah, and I think Paul would say well, Paul would 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 push us to ask the question: Why the heck not? Right, and yeah. do we mm-hmm. grieve over that? Yeah. yeah, not even the question: Why not? But yeah. man, what a lot! What a poverty! Right, what a loss, yeah. And there are obviously there's there's um, messianic Jews and there's there's lots of strains of this. And I know Catholics who, who are, are Jewish yeah. of that. Yeah, who are Jewish. So yeah. so that's not not there. Um, but anyway, th- these are all kind of floating around in the background, um, which are important. These are important considerations. So um, one, th- one thing we didn't really get to last week, this question of Abraham. Remember, we talked about Abraham being the figure that's sort of the dividing line in some ways with the community that some people are saying, well, we're better because we are ethnically we're bloodline related to to Abraham and therefore we're better. And Paul says, no, it's those who have faith that are actually the heir of Abraham. But if you look at what Abraham's promise, so why, this is another question of the law that I was sort of mulling over this last week. Why is the law? And again, we don't say that the law is dispensed. It's not just kind of pushed aside. It is fulfilled. So what's the difference between, you know, abolition or dispensation or fulfillment? It's that the promise given to Abraham was that he was going to have a seed, a descendant And through that descendant, singular tense, all the nations would be blessed. And then there was an intermediary period. Mm. Jesus, Paul wants to make clear, is the descendant that Abraham is promised. And if that's true, then you guys, the church, are the promise. So why do we not need to keep the Torah anymore because it was an intermediary until the promise was fulfilled. Mm-hmm. The promise is fulfilled. You are it. You are literally living out what Abraham was promised. So you're a new humanity, you're a new huma- a new creation. And what he's telling the community is that you're acting like you're the old humanity. You're acting pre promise, right? You're acting like those things are still in place. Right. But because of your baptism, you have died to those things. You've entered into Christ's death. You've been drowned, literally. And you've risen to new life, right? So the, he talks about what was the point of all those laws, right? Um, they were highlighting, they were magnifying the reality of, of sin, right? So the solution has arrived. He's come to rescue Israel. He's come to rescue the Gentiles. He's come to rescue all of creation, which again, leads the community to the natural question of what about the rest of Israel, right? What do we do with that? And so Paul begins chapter nine, you can actually divide up chapter nine, 10 and 11, where he's going to talk about Israel. Okay. What do we do about Israel?
0: Israel, meaning the Jews who have not, no.
1: Yes. But even that's not a hundred percent clear. He's certainly talking about them, Yeah. but it's not a, I'll try to, that's the question mark I have. And in the spirit of our very special episode, I don't totally understand what Paul is saying here. Yeah. And by the time we get to chapter 11, I want to show you, I really don't understand. I I kind of understand the principle, but I don't think any of us actually understand. I don't think Paul fully understands what he's talking about because he hasn't seen the fruit of it yet. Um, who exactly is Israel? Is it the new community of Israel, which is the church? Yes. Is it still our Jewish ancestors who have not believed in the Messiah? Yes. Where's the dividing line exactly? It gets a little bit blurry. Yeah. So what he's going to do in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is he's going to talk about Israel past, present, and future past, present, and future, right? So he's going to, in chapter nine, start off by saying, he's gonna speak to his own anguish over his family members who have not accepted the Messiah. And he's gonna turn back to the story of salvation history. So he says, chapter nine, verse one, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying, which is an odd way to begin a section of the letter, right? But he wants you to see that whatever he's about to say, I'm not paying lip service. Like what I'm saying, I want you to pay attention to because this is coming what. from the depths of my heart. Yeah, t- Sure. It could <laughs> be translated. Wish, I'm like, sure some Bible There's got to be a paraphrase out there. There's a, there's a version
0: there. called the Southern Message, and right now it's just like, well, i tell, tell you, you what.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. That, that one can't be translated into the Southern Message. It's harder. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it could. I'm sure it could. We'll wait for some emails. Um, My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen by race. They are the Israelites. To them belong the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and to their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen.
0: There's a universal there. There's a particular here, but there's also the universal that I think many of us who are believers have experienced, which is the anguish over the idea that people we love won't experience salvation. Yes. Yeah.
1: So this, in one sense, this I think he's talking about. Jewish people. He's talking about Israel in a very particular sense here, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Kate, to your question. Um, Did we talk about the the Tarsus thing? Uh, Weeks ago, I don't know if I mentioned this, but there's something I've been kind of hung up on. Remember in Paul's missionary journeys, so in his conversion, we talked about his conversion in the first episode, right, when he's thrown on the ground to Damascus, on the road to Damascus. And it says he he goes to Damascus, he's kind of too hot to handle, they kick him out, they send him to Jerusalem, they don't want anything to do with him. And so he goes to Arabia for a while, then he goes back to Tarsus for a long time. What's interesting is that we don't know anything about his time in Tarsus. He doesn't say anything about his time in Tarsus. And in his missionary journeys, if you follow the routes he takes, it would be like a stone's throw a couple times to just go up to Tarsus. And you got to ask, like, it's his hometown. It's literally where he's come from. Why does he not establish a church in Tarsus? Why is there no Christian community at this point up there? Wouldn't you think that, like, one of your first stops would be tarsus your own community your own community right? right it's yeah. kind of odd it's like this glaring absence in the mm. text you scott live in you live in the community where you grew up i do yeah i I'm I'm always one of the few, few people in this part
0: uh, yeah you're one of the few people in the in this part of the world and I, i'm always struck by that because uh, many people in colorado where we live are from far away yeah but i often think that like um the place where I would have the least credibility to speak mm-hmm. about the gospel is among people who ha- who uh, who know who I have always well, Jesus just... Jesus experiences that. Right, this. Jesus experiences that too. Yeah. It's like, so who you, are you?
1: We played football with you. Your like, we Your experience know you.
0: is unique because you do speak about the gospel in the place where you live, where you've always been. And they can say, isn't this the, I don't know what your dad does for a living, but isn't this the he sells commercial trucks. Isn't this the commercial truck
1: salesman's son? Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah he could say that. I understand I'm what, an anomaly. what Paul's saying. I, I, I do understand that. that well, not what he's saying, but I do understand that.
1: Well, impulse. but here, here's my question, though, with that. Or maybe that. an
0: insecurity, like, even an insecurity, like, am I, would I be a credible oh, and effective witness there? Yeah. More so than I'm certain that I wouldn't be. Okay. Just as an insecurity would, okay. you know, how would I be received?
1: So here's my, here's my beef with that. It's not a, not a beef because I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. There's a lot of dynamics to people in their families and their hometowns, right? Um, he goes back to Tarsus for a long time after yeah. his conversion, so he's there, and I I wonder if part I kind of get this from NT Wright. Part of this grief and this sorrow that he's experiencing, I wonder if some of that does come out of those many years that he did spend in Tarsus yeah. post conversion, or if, I don't know if you can call it a conversion or not. Post um, following of Jesus, right? Because he doesn't see himself converting to another religion. He's just – he's Judaism has received its Messiah. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if part of what we're seeing is he was there for a long time. He was with his family. He was probably with his parents and his siblings yeah. and his guys he grew up with, right? Right. And I wonder if that's part of why he can speak really acutely to this grief and sorrow that they didn't accept it. They mm-hmm. did reject him. And maybe it does speak yes. to the prophet has never accepted in his hometown, right? And that he had a, a negative experience there. I just, I can't read this apart from those years he spent in Tarsus and wondering yeah. what happened during that time. Mm-hmm. Because again, He's not just paying lip service. He's not like, well, my whole family came along. But, you know, I understand that for other people in an abstract, this is an issue. No, my heart grieves. And I wonder if he had arguments and fights and tears were shed over this reality for those years. We we don't know that. But I just think it's an interesting. It is a glaring um, absence that he doesn't establish a church in Tarsus for whatever reason. There's lots of possibilities. Anyway, I'm just kind of left with that. Um, so he um, is he done with Israel, right? Is is kind of the heart of the of the matter of this. So he's going to remind us using salvation history that number one, simple ethnicity never guaranteed that someone could be a faithful member of the covenant family. Mm-hmm. And he goes on, he uses some, his thesis statement, I think, comes in verse six of this section. He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Because you can look at this situation, you can look at the promises of God, you can look at who Israel was supposed to be in the Old Testament and be like, hey, A lot of them didn't follow. So did God's promise, did God's word, did the scriptures fail? Like did something go wrong? Or as some people think, did God just get so mad? This is the substitutionary thing I think we've talked about. Did God just get so mad at Israel because they rejected the Messiah that he said, all right, you're not the covenant people anymore. You're not chosen. I'm moving on. He chose a new people. Again, a lot of people read this and took that. And he's like, no, that's not the case. God's word hadn't failed because not all those who were descended from Israel belong to Israel. And that's a tricky statement, right? Yeah. And that's where you're like, wait, what, who do you mean by Israel here? Yeah. And so, good, you're giving the right fa- confused faces. <laughs> and he's going to be like, I assume you're confused, so I'm going to give some examples. So, um, and not all our children of Abraham. So remember, we got to go back to Abraham because he is the figure of Israel. He's the father of Israel, again, par excellence, because they're not his descendants. He said there was Isaac... And that's the promise through whom the descendants would come and be named. Uh, but this means, I'm sorry, verse 7. 8. This means that they're yeah, not say, the
0: children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants.
1: So what is he talking about there? What is he assuming you're going to know? What it means to be the children of the promise. Yes, and also what who are not the children of the promise. He's assuming you're going to know about Ishmael and be like, oh. wait a second. He had another son before Isaac, right? Because of a whole lot of sin on Abraham's part. But that doesn't explain anything. It said, well, it doesn't explain. That's why he's going to go on. Oh, okay. Thank you. No, but talk, talk <laughs> more <laughs> about that Wait, for a second. Wait a minute. <laughs> talk more about that for well, a second. Well, because not every descendant
0: of Isaac has accepted Christ.
1: Exactly right. And that's his whole point.
0: Oh. His whole point well, here. Well, that explains everything.
1: It, it kind of does because this whole overarching point is that a bunch of people are like, well, we're descended from Abraham. What else do you want? that's that's good enough. And he's yeah. like, no, that's not actually it. It's yeah. not because you're descendant from, because remember, go, take it to the very, very practical level. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are saying, hey, Gentiles, thank you for holding down the fort while we were gone in exile, because Claudius kicked us out. But we Abraham's are family, the rightful yeah. leaders of the church. Mm-hmm. So give the keys back, because mm-hmm. we're descendant from Abraham. So therefore, by virtue of our bloodline, we are in charge. And, Abraham, and Paul's like, first of all, the premise is off. Aside from the practical implications, the premise of that is off. So he says, um, yeah, it's not just the children of the flesh. He says in verse eight, it's not just, bio, not just by virtue of being biological. That means you're the children of the promise, the family. are reckoned as descendants, seed. The word he uses for descendants at the very end of verse eight is seed, which is the word that has to do with the promise to Abraham of the blessing, who would be blessed. So it's not just descendants in a generic sense, he wants you thinking about that promise. Mm. For this is what the promise said in Genesis 12 about, oh, and actually no, this, now he's moving on to something else. About this time I'm going to return and Sarah will have a son. This is from the mouths of the visitors who come to Abraham. Tradition suggested was the archangels. Do you guys know the story? When Abraham, uh, after he has uh, Ishmael and there's a whole bunch of strife over that, circumcision comes into the picture as a punishment for his sexual immorality and also for his failure to trust God with that promise. Mm. There's three visitors that come to his house who he serves, remember? And they're traditionally believed yeah, to be the archangels. The tri- yeah. Yeah. So one of them says, hey, I'm going to come back and Rebecca is going to have a son. Remember, she's like listening in the corner and she snort laughs. And that's why Isaac is called Isaac, which means he laughs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff kind of packed into that, into the salvation history. About this time, I'm at the second half of verse nine. I'm going to return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather, Isaac though they were not yet born and hadn't done anything either good or bad, they hadn't followed or broken any laws in order. The God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the elder is going to serve the younger as it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. So he's going back to the story of, do you guys remember Jacob and Esau? Mm -hmm. And if you're, if you're kind of parsing this out um, and hated, I think is a bit hyperbolic. I think it's there for a purpose. In other words, The older is not going to be the one who leads the family. He's not cast off. This is not an Isaac Ishmael situation, but it's another case. It's another piece of evidence in the precedent that sometimes the younger brother is put in charge over the older one. Why? And what he seems to make clear here is no discernible reason. But because of God's call, because mm-hmm. that's the way they hadn't done anything good or bad, there wasn't a punishment or a blessing being given. It's just that's the way God wanted it, and it's almost frustrating that He kind of leaves it that that way. Yeah. But that's what He says. Mm-hmm. What shall we say then? Verse fourteen. Is there in? We're not going to read the whole thing, but there's a couple passages I just want to highlight. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Like, well, the old, the elder, you know, Esau should have gotten the blessing, but he didn't. Jacob got it. Was well, God just injustice? He, and again, he sounds like his conversation with the law again. So, why the law? Like, is it is it a punishment? Is it is it arbitrary? What What's the deal? Is God unjust? By no means. Again, that really strong legal statement. For he says to Moses, hey, I'm going to have mercy on who I want to have mercy on, and I'll have compassion on who I will have compassion. So, it depends not upon man's will or exertion, but upon God's mercy. This is why some of the reformers thought that Paul was talking about good deeds versus faith. And that legalism doesn't actually get you. They're they're fighting against some some legitimate things. But you can see perhaps why in the wrong context, this is being taken to mean something that Paul doesn't really intend. Uh, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, hey, I raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power to you so that my name may be proclaimed to all the earth. So in other words, hey, you might remember the story of the Exodus. I used even Pharaoh, a pagan emperor, to do my will in the world, I used him for whatever I want. So I'm going to choose whatever leaders I want for whatever purpose I feel to proclaim my name to the nations. He doesn't
0: mention Cyrus as an example. He
1: doesn't mention Cyrus. You might think you really got Cyrus on the brain I lately. Do. Yeah, I had to. Which is good. Well he's done. A
0: Bible character Scott taught me about it a couple. Of weeks
1: <laughs> well, he's really, but it's a great example, yeah. and because you know, he was the king who. God uses to set, send Israel back to rebuild Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. But it said, the prophet said, I'm going to use him. But I think he assumes that you're kind of thinking through this line. And then he talks, you know, he quotes from Hosea, he quotes from Isaiah um, about all of these things. So, He's saying there's precedent in salvation history to show that God sometimes does the opposite of what we might expect. Mm-hmm. And who are we? We all accept this story. We all know that simply because Ishmael was related to Abraham didn't make him the child of the promise. Now, there's a whole much more complicated story about what we do with Ishmael, who came into the world under pretty harsh circumstances through no fault of his own, quite frankly, and how God actually chooses to bless Hagar, his mother and Ishmael in in their own way. So this isn't to be like, yeah, see, Ishmael stinks. That's It's not exactly that, but it's trying to prove a point. Mm -hmm. He's like, look, the family is messy. And sometimes people who you don't expect are the ones that God chooses to show. And so the Gentiles leading the church are that. They are the Jacob. They are the Pharaoh used for God's purposes. They're the ones who are actually embodying This precedent, right? The golden calf, Pharaoh, God uses all of these things to fulfill his promise. So who are you to tell him that he can't use the Gentiles? So that's number one. It's not an injustice to the people of Israel that a younger brother is actually leading them. That's premise number one. And he's trying to prove it by salvation history through sorrow and tears. He's not just spitting out an apologetic at them, right? he's saying, look, I had to wrestle through this and I'm working through this because we're talking about my family. Mm. But I looked at my history. I looked at our story and this is what I see. This Mm. is how God works. So there's reason to to take heart in this, which takes us to chapter 10, right? And in chapter 10, he moves from salvation history in the past or Israel in salvation history to now Israel in the present, right? So now now what do we do? So he says, brethren, my heart's desire, as is chapter 10, verse one, Brother, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that is for my Israelite brothers and sisters, presumably who have not accepted the Messiah, my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And again, we've talked about this word before. I think heaven and hell certainly are there. They're on the horizon. But it's not merely that. He's not just talking about where we go when we die. He's talking about coming under the protection and being a part of this society of the church, right? Saved, remember, for Paul is a much broader idea than simple Mm -hmm. end of life issues, right? And and again, that's what he means there. Um, I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. Some of them haven't actually seen what is true. He's not, again, it's not anti-Semitic. He's not bashing the Jewish people. He's saying they haven't seen this in its fullness yet. Um, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, the truthfulness, the way that he fulfills his promises and seeking to establish their own, they didn't submit to God's righteousness, which happened to be through a crucified Messiah named Jesus. They did not submit to that for Christ is the end the telos literally of the law so that everyone who has faith through the promise given to Abraham may be justified. So he's going to turn, he's going to go, go from there, um, it seems to suggest that many Israelites are still basing their covenant identity in a performative way with regard to the Torah, right? Not recognizing that Jesus is the telos, right? The whole faith versus works question. So he kind of goes on, he, he riffs on that for a little while. There, there's kind of a segue from chapter 10 to chapter 11, where he moves to the logical question of, okay, what next? Yeah. What now? So what's Israel's future? And, and there's a question that kind of comes up, which is namely, is God done with Israel? Is that it? Is that the end of the story? I right. mean, th- there's these Jews who have believed in Jesus. They're grafted into the family. Like, that's cool. What about the rest? And that's where, again, the question of who is Israel matters because it's a both and for Paul. Mm-hmm. So is God done with Israel? And the answer is an unequivocal no, absolutely not. A, he says, the first reason we know this is because number one, there's a whole lot of Jews who have recognized Jesus as Messiah. I'm evidence of this. I'm one of them. The apostles were Mary, right? There's lots of us. So we can't just be like, well, the Jews rejected him and the Gentiles didn't. No, that's just not true. That's not the story of Acts of the Apostles. So that's number one, um, because the reality is there are many who still don't. There are many who still don't see the Messiah. But what Paul says, and this is where he kind of flips things on its head really beautifully. He says that God is able to use, just like he used Pharaoh, he's able to use their rejection of the Messiah for his purposes, right? And what he says is that it was their reject. Well, so look at, look at chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Noi he's used that repeatedly right. by no means. For I myself, I'm an Israelite. I'm descended from Abraham, member of the tribe of Benjamin. Um, God has not rejected his people who he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah who pleads with God against Israel? And he goes on. But then verse seven, what then? Uh, no, not there. Okay. Verse 11. <laughs> so I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? Is this rejection of the Messiah? Is it, it. a period? Is that yeah. it? Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says what? By no means. No, he no Again, again he keeps drilling this. Through their trespass, that is the rejection of the Messiah, salvation has now come to the Gentiles. And if we remember the story of Acts of the Apostles, it was because of the persecution, the infighting in the community that drives the church out of Jerusalem, which is the first sign they get like, oh, we should tell the Gentiles this. I have a question about this. Paul
0: doesn't consider – Paul does not seem to consider that many Jews have not heard the gospel. Oh, he seems to presume – Personal culpability for having not, you know, accepted Jesus, or corporate culpability, but, but how, how effective does he think his evangelization has been, well, or that of the
1: apostles? I mean, that, that's kind of his point A, though. He's like, no, look, there's lots, and and I think he presumes that there'll be lots more. Yeah, but through their transgression, salvation. The it's ones almost who like, have rejected.
0: Yeah, but is he assigning a kind of corporate culpability, or is he saying there are individuals who heard the gospel and didn't receive it?
1: Uh, it's hard to parse out. It's both and. Because again, he says, look, there's lots of us. And every place he goes, read Acts of the Apostles. His stopping point for every new mission territory is always the synagogue. Yeah. He goes there first. And he's getting converts in the yeah. synagogue. So I don't think he sees that that's ending. But you also, in the in the, in the the Hebrew mindset, Israel is a collective whole. They just simply are. Yes, there's individuals. Yes, there's free choice. But same with the church, right? The church is the church. There's a whole... Yeah, Big part of your job is reporting on the sin of the church. It's true. And it's our sin. Check it out and at killercatholic.com <laughs> so subscribe. But that's an important theological point. I can't, as a Catholic and a professor at a seminary, be like, Well, there was a lot of priests who committed a lot of sins, but that's not my problem. No. no. It's my problem. Yeah. So there is a, so you can't separate out the individual and I, the collective. I just, it's, it's not it's a um it, it is not the
0: corporate. way that we typically think about evangelization, mm. especially sort of evangelization gentes. to think that a person who does not receive the gospel, we don't typically think of not receiving the proclaimed gospel as a sin. And Paul takes it as a sin. And I mm-hmm. want to learn from that. As a trespass. As yeah, as he uses trespass. the word,
1: tra- which he, I don't know what the Greek like is. I,
0: I, it would, it, it's an inversion, actually, because we think if someone hasn't received the gospel, we tend to think, well, I must not have proclaimed the gospel effectively. Right. We need to do more yeah. stuff to get the kids in here. Whereas Paul would be like, well, well those kids in their transgression. You so know I'm gonna I mean?
1: push on that. I'm gonna push back on that Please a little sue. bit though. I, and I'm I'm just kind of speaking off the cuff. That's the nature I think of our podcast. Paul would say for his Jewish brethren, it's different. It's a different reality than it is simply ad gentes. Because we're not proposing something new. We're trying to demonstrate, says Paul. That the thing that we have all collectively been doing for centuries and waiting for is here. And in
0: other words, this And that's be, what you're rejecting. This would be as profound as rejecting David.
1: Yeah. I'm trying to think of a Catholic analogy. No, I,
0: I want to have a Jewish analogy oh, okay. if I can. Like, fair. This would be as if you did not ex- – this would be the same as if you did not accept the kingship Greater of David or Greater the authority of Moses. More than that. But but in the same vein, like these are – this the is same who vein. we are. And for yeah. Paul, it's like this is who we are. So we think – Again, there's this thing, I think maybe... But again, that's
1: different than going to your non-Catholic neighbor and inviting them to mass. It's going to your Catholic neighbor and saying, hey... I don't know, the, a couple of years ago, what the COVID restrictions are done. It's time to come back to mass. Sunday no, is I reject that. I don't want to go to mass. That's even that, different than... But then so somebody
0: goes to tell them about the, the
1: going back to mass. Right. But it's and so, if they reject that, it's of a different nature than going to my unchurched neighbor who's never been to mass and doesn't know anything about the church and inviting them to come.
0: It's so interesting because we tend to put that, even that... On ourselves. Why didn't people come back to Mass? Well, we should have been I more. Didn't tell them about I, yeah, it. enough, mm, well enough, enough, effectively enough, yes. joyfully enough. Exactly. We very rarely take the person who does not receive revelation to be culpable. Is for that Maybe true? We should, oh, yeah, hold on. Is that true though? I mean, I have a lot of self. I feel yeah. that. <laughs> right. Exactly. Maybe it's just me. And Kate. Okay. Maybe a we'll a long, long, long. our long, long. about this. <laughs> hold up. I think <laughs>
1: we're outrageous. operating on different analogies here, though. You and. Me and you guys. Oh. I do that in the sense of evangelization in a general sense. Yes, I'm 100% with you. But to you. lapsed Catholics too. I, this is probably to my own guilt. Or maybe it's not. No, maybe, I mean, is maybe it's not. This seems to be I the I tend to the... get angrier at lapsed Catholics who um, I feel like are being hypocritical than I do about my And that seems non-Christian to be, What I'm neighbors. observing here
0: is that seems to be in the Pauline. Maybe. The, the Pauline it's a good thing question. has an expectation. It's a good question. God has revealed himself to you and you have to respond. And maybe that's actually a better. Sometimes I think that our approach, mine and Kate's approach, at least.
1: Well, no, I'm. I'm, is, <laughs> I'm with you. I just I'm trying to think of my own. It's almost reactions. condescending,
0: like um, if we only do enough, people will, and it almost mitigates people's agency. Ex- yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay,
1: but what if we're talking about not, you know, someone was raised Catholic and they haven't been to Mass in a really long time. What yeah. if we're not talking about that person? We're talking about the really faithful person. Oh yeah. Who is. Father Father Vicar stops coming to mass and he's still living in the rectory. Yeah, and take out com- maybe coming to mass isn't the right analogy. No, I w- I think he's just- think of the things that faithful Catholics are doing in the church that make you mad because I know that's there. I know we all get mad at the people who are like you should know better. Well, and I try not to-, to judge
0: Scott. I'm just kidding. <laughs> ah.
1: I judge for a living, probably. I, I'm t- <laughs> t- I'm trying to think of the right analogy, but yeah, maybe it's the fu- yeah fu- maybe or but again, even- we're not talking about lapsed Catholics. We're yeah. not talking about unchurched. Jewish people somehow. We're talking about the people who are... No, that's really helpful. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think. I'm, Do we I'm, have a right to expect
0: from you that you will live in accord with Revelation and you're not. And I think there are people that we would put in that category yeah. in our Catholic if life you, who are like, wait, Who what? are my good friend. If you stop practicing the faith, I would be mad at you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, okay. You would probably... And, and I think what Paul is demonstrating here, part of this is Paul's working out his own reflection on this on paper, Yeah, which is actually what's interesting and beautiful and difficult. Well, he's because
0: because he's he's saying this out loud, and somebody's writing it down. It could just be a stream of
1: maybe edited, edited stream of, but Paul does seem clear that sometimes he has a stream of conscience. He's like, no, keep that in. Don't edit that out. I want to make sure that stays. Yeah. But it's a mingling. You would probably be mad at me, but it, hopefully I hope it would be mixed with grief. It'd be a, it'd be oh, a, I'd be a complicated set of emotions. But I, in a certain way, I'd be easier for me to be anguished for your children and frustrated and simply yeah, frustrated. Yeah, that's with you. fair though. How did you betray your But own it's children. a complicated set of yeah. emotions. Mm-hmm. It's a mixed bag, which is what Paul's trying to work through here, right? I think. No, that's a, that's a really important question. Yeah, thank you. That's helpful to me.
0: Um so because I couldn't understand why he Had this language of trespassing and things like that, but it's because he has this high expectation. I think
1: so. I think that's right. Because it's, again, it's different than a group of Gentiles in Corinth that are not coming. It's also why this language is not,
0: why this language is appropriate for Paul, but is historically conditioned by the immediacy of the thing and is not appropriate to talk about Israel now. And, but I, I suspect that this, this transgression language is where a lot of anti-Semitism is born. It absolutely is. That's these why people that's an rejected, important statement. But Paul is saying, no, these people who lived and worshiped with us, who had this experience of the incarnation, yeah. who I expected would receive this in this way. Now I'm, yeah. I don't yeah, understand. And I believe that they have culpability for not sort of participating in the fullness of revelation. But it's different to think about that separated by Generations, yeah.
1: So the parochial, and
0: we're not a part of the community.
1: So the parochial well, vicar who's ceased to believe in the Eucharist and isn't coming to mass anymore, right, is different than the person who 30 years ago was baptized and maybe went to Sunday school but hasn't been back since. There's a there's a chronology, right, that changes the thing. Yeah, or, it's the or reason
0: why it's the reason why the immediacy. This is, the is thing, a poor analogy, said. but obviously the church engages with contemporary Protestants differently than it engaged with the reformers yes Mm -hmm. rightly so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and that's that's how Paul perceives this I've
1: never thought about it in those terms that's really helpful um to put it in those terms because it's not the same thing right this isn't the same reality anymore yeah that's good um so he's gonna go on from here to talk about one of my favorite metaphors that he uses which is called the olive tree metaphor which he goes on here, um, and there's some things that I just think are fascinating here. So he says, verse 17, he says, "But if some of the branches, actually, we got to back up to verse 13." Uh, now but, I'm
0: speaking to you, Gentiles.
1: Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, so Paul gets his vocation. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order that to make my fellow Jews jealous, in order to save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what would their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. So what is he saying here? He's saying, again, this sort of historical reality that their rejection was part of the impetus for the church moving outward to the Gentiles. That's true. And he gives this, Paul is simultaneously humble and grief-filled and big-headed all at once because that's Paul, man. But he's, uh, he's giving this really interesting analogy of knowing I am the best teacher in Judaism. He said that repeatedly elsewhere, that I was the best rabbi there was. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, like I'm the most learned person of my generation and now imagine the most learned person of our generation going and teaching – I'm trying to think of a dumb – like uh, – <laughs> You're trying to think of an inoffensive analogy is what you're trying to do. <laughs> yeah, I know, yes. I know yeah. it. But they're like, I, he's going to the people who, let's say, would probably theologically appreciate him least. Yeah. Right? Because he knows the ins and outs of Torah. He knows the languages. He knows the – A rigors. scholar like you, Scott, just no. teaching at a sort of a – a CCD class
0: of fifth graders who don't want to be there and who just are throw paper airplanes at you. Who also aren't
1: Catholic. Yeah. Again, the, the analogy here you are, the best, te- Arguably no, the best it. teacher of your generation. All
0: right. Okay. But he's saying. Which is a different generation.
1: But there's God. probably a bunch of people. Right. Oh, <laughs> stop. Oh <my> hey, <laughs> man. <laughs> Old man. Um, but he's presumably like there's rabbis back in Jerusalem like Paul like he was our best guy and he's with the Gentiles he's with the pork eaters now like that's what he's doing he could have had a tenure position in any yeshiva he wanted to in the world like you could have done anything and you're there with them they don't deserve your teaching they don't deserve this and he's like maybe they're getting jealous and thinking man why them there must be something Mm -hmm. which is an interesting thing to kind of speculate about and he says look if that causes a jealousy That might lead to something else, praise be to God. But he also says, look, if this rejection led to the church going out to the nations, man, imagine what their acceptance would do. Imagine what their reconciliation, it's life from the dead, man, because of what he's going to say next. So uh, he says, verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off, now he just starts talking about branches without mentioning the tree. But the understanding, and this comes deeply from the Old Testament, that Israel is always understood as either a tree or a vine, Mm -hmm. sometimes a vineyard, right? Um, Tree of Jesse. The tree of Jesse. Yeah. Yeah. The family tree. Uh, remember one of the most important, um, references for this, cause I think we talked about it way back in our first season in the gospel of Mark, remember Jesus cursing of the fig tree. Yep. Yeah. So the fig tree is often a metaphor for Jerusalem. And he just remember Jesus in the gospel said, Jerusalem is cursed and will be cut off and there won't be left one stone upon another. And then he goes and finds the fig tree that he cursed withered because it's not bearing fruit. Yeah. So he talks about Israel as a tree yeah. bearing fruit, not bearing fruit. There's a whole series of, of stuff going on here but he says what if some of the branches were broken off and you a wild olive shoot were grafted onto their place to share the riches of the olive tree don't boast over the branches for if you do boast remember that it's not you that support the root but the root that supports you so in, in part what he's saying yeah, to saying, the gentiles strongly, yeah because again he's going back and forth yeah, here right, yeah and to the gentiles is like you guys are getting a little big-headed yourselves we haven't talked much about you yeah. lately
0: yeah. but you think you're great you you are Grafted onto this tree. You right. you are... And our- the
1: tree predates you. Yeah. Like, that's great. You showed up and you brought some new music in and you redecorated the church. Like, the church yeah. predates you. Yeah. This thing is... The- and so this is where Paul's, I think, most important theological point here comes, which is that Israel is one. And we've talked about this idea, the supersessionalism. I don't like this. I don't like this idea. There's an old Israel and a new Israel. There's simply Israel, right? There's Israel. And he says, some Israel is like a tree. It's like, it's like a tree. Again, he's bringing this from the old Testament. There are some branches of that tree through their rejection of the Messiah that have fallen off. The tree has not been cut down. It was in the time of, the, like there's a whole analogy for trees being cut down in the Old Testament, but the tree is the tree. And if some of the branches of the tree have rejected the Messiah, then those branches have fallen off. But other branches have been grafted onto its place, but the tr- the branch can't think that it is itself the tree. I was reading a, a number of years ago, uh, an article on t- tree grafting in the first century and there was a, as one does, um, but there was an article, there was a practice that was popular at the time. And again, I, I find this really fascinating. Going back to what Jesus says about the fig tree in Mark, there was a practice at the time where uh, people were, so So imagine this. Imagine that you have two trees, right? Two olive trees. One of them, Kate, is in your backyard. Um, you take care of it every day, studiously, right? You water it every day. You have a little fence around it. You know, so the rabbits and the squirrels don't get to it. Mm-hmm. You prune it when it needs to be pruned. Like you take great care of this tree; it's it's impeccable. You have another tree, the same kind of. Well, let's we're in Colorado. Let's say it's a fir tree, right? You have a fir tree. It's and you take care of it, and it's perfectly Christmas tree shaped. And you water it every day, and it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, up in the mountains, right on the the slopes of the foothills, going up toward the mountains, there's another same tree, same fir tree. But it's not in your backyard, it's not protected by a fence, it's not protected by houses, it's constantly getting whipped with the wind and hail and snow, and nobody's caring for it. Yeah, so which tree is going to be stronger? In a certain sense, foothill. Yeah, the foothill tree, because it's it's just it it's bears more. It's been exposed more. to the yeah, elements
0: yeah. And, yeah.
1: So there was a practice around this around Bible times that people began to establish. They're like, look, if we have a cult, a nice cultivated tree that's just not bearing the kind of fruit we want it to, it's not doing what we hoped. What if we take the shoot of a wild tree, the same kind of tree, and we graft it on? I don't know exactly what the process of grafting is, but we graft the wild branches onto the cultivated tree and they found that it would often give a new kind of lifeblood to the cultivated tree and help it bear better and more fruit. Uh blew my mind when I found out that that was a thing that people did, because that's exactly what Paul is saying here. And if you understand Jesus threatening and talking about these warnings about Israel not bearing the right kind of fruit, Mm -hmm. but God not willing to abandon Israel because Israel is Israel and the tree is the tree. So what does he do? Yeah, there's pruning that needs to be done. And if some branches fall off, those branches have fallen off. It is what it is. But he is choosing now to graft wild Gentile branches that have been out exposed to the elements graft them onto the tree of Israel so that the tree of Israel, which is now the church, is going to bear more fruit. This is the analogy that Paul's working on. Scott, this this raises me raises for me so many questions.
0: Can we talk next week about how what Paul says relates to what the church contemporarily teaches
1: about our relationship to contemporary Judaism? I think we should, because that's not an easy question. Yeah. That's not an easy question. Um, I will say, again, just to end out, because that's all I have for this week, but I will say to end out... um, yeah he gives this olive tree metaphor but he 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 says mysteriously almost that one day Jesus will be acknowledged by the rest of Israel and again I don't know what he means by Israel here does he mean unbelieving Israel does he mean the church I'm not sure what he means he doesn't really offer any details on what israel's acknowledgement of Jesus is how when which who is that uh it verse is verse 25 25 uh, let me find it. 26. Yeah, lest you be wise oh. in your own yeah, in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren, a hardening has come upon the part of Israel until the full number of Gentiles come in until God is done doing what He's going to do, and so all of Israel will be saved. As it is written, that the deliverer will come from Zion to banish the ungladliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them: I will take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, Gentiles. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts of the call of God are irrevocable. The Old Testament doesn't doesn't just go back on itself. Just as you were once disobedient to God, talking to the Gentiles, and have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may receive mercy. For God has consigned all men to disobedience. That's chapters one through three. That name he may have mercy on all. And then he kind of rounds out this whole section. In case you're confused by saying, "Just as he is, oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and how unscrutable His ways? For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor?" I already
0: got this idea, though.
1: I think it is completely consistent with the rest of the letter. He trusts simply, mysteriously, trusts so deeply in God's character and His faithfulness, which is the whole point of the letter that he won't give up on the covenant people, even though Paul doesn't understand what that will look like. Mm -hmm. But I think it's completely consistent with everything else he said. Yeah, He just doesn't know what it means yet. I don't either, frankly.
0: Sunday School is a production of Pillar Media and NGD Production. Our executive producer is Kate Olivera, our Sunday School teacher is Dr. Scott Powell prepared next time to answer all your